listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Obsessive, intuitive, simple. J.C. Batzner is a composer, Zazen practitioner, sci-fi geek, comic book reader, amateur seamster, and juggler on the faculty of Central Michigan University, where he teaches music composition and music technology courses. He has been many places and has done several things, some of which are rather impressive. Reflections on the nature of impermanence. Tenor and snare drum. How did, <laughs> how did that combination come about? That's a great question. Um, and with, with most of these things, because I, I, I do have a decent amount of pieces for unusual instruments or combinations of instruments. And uh, my answer to those is usually the same, where I was asked to write this. Uh, oh man yeah okay so who who had that idea um andrew allen uh is a saxophone uh uh player who uh did his graduate work at at cmu and Mm -hmm. uh we just we kind of hit it off he asked me for a piece and he was uh playing with a a friend of his uh gordon hicken who was uh, Mm -hmm. a name that i was just looking up before we were recording uh (laughs) because i I, I like it preparation i i i i I haven't met uh gordon at all but they uh, have created a duo called rogue two which wrote oh nice right right (laughs) yeah and they were recording an album which i hope is called i found them or you know something like that uh (laughs) and they wanted a piece uh and yeah tenor uh it could have been for any saxophone uh and snare drum uh possibly with electronics so for a while i thought i would be putting some electronics with it Mm -hmm. and ended up not I kind of got to a point where it's like, you know, electronics are just kind of kind of screw this thing up. Uh, so there it is. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it, a lot of the music that I write are, is not necessarily planned. It's not stuff that I would expect to write. Mm-hmm. But that's 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 part of the fun, I think. Yeah. I mean, I've seen you've written quite a bit of uh, music for percussion. Mm-hmm. I mean, has uh, I've I've. I've done the same and I've found that in my own writing, I tend, I mean, this, this was kind of an assignment that was given to you by the player, but in, in my own writing, I'm finding that I'm slowly like whittling down the, the list of percussion instruments that I would even be interested in writing for. Okay. So I thought that, I thought that snare drum was like, that was such a cool choice because obviously you can go like, Oh, we'll put a marimba in or we'll put a vibraphone in sure. and then, you know, you know, they can talk, uh, speak speak together in in pitches, but just the snare drum. It has limited resources, but I think you explored it as much as as well, much as one can without making it seem like oh, I'm gonna like wring every possible thing out of this <laughs> instrument. Thanks, thanks. Um, I tend to, I guess, I tend to be drawn towards sort of problem pieces where the, mm. there there is some sort of imbalance or difficulty inherent in the piece itself and almost like they are problems to be solved in some ways because the idea of Mm -hmm. yeah you know tenor sax and snare drum what the heck am i gonna do with that (laughs) and the looks that i would get when people would say so what are you working on now i mean i remember uh uh when i was finishing the piece uh uh david maslanka was at cmu for the the Mm -hmm. premiere of his third uh piano concerto 
Uh-huh. And we sat down in my office and and because he wanted to get to know my my work a bit and so on. And the look that he gave me when I told him, yeah, well, right now I'm finishing up a piece for tenor sax, snare drum, and and electronics. Uh, although, because at the time I thought it was going to do right. something, um, it 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 was kind of, it kind of baffled him uh, that that. <laughs> but that's that's okay. I mean, uh, it, it's it's sort of fun. Um, you know, it's kind of like uh, the the pieces that I did for Natural Horn and uh, Laptop. Like, mm-hmm. why? Uh, again, you know, my, my colleague, Bruce, uh, Bunnell, he said, I think we should do this. It'd be awesome. And so, and you said, yes. yeah, oh, of course. What, what am I going to do? <laughs> say no. I mean, right. Yeah. Performer wants to do something unusual. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to say no to that. Right. I mean, I think you just brought up a, an interesting point about this piece and a, a, that is balance mm. between the two instruments because you, you, and I think as I was listening to it, I was really I was really struck by the fact that they don't balance. Sure. And you don't, you don't really, I mean, with very few exceptions, there are um, mostly the tenor sax is kind of on the chill side and the snare drum can, can range the whole gamut, but can be extremely loud Mm -hmm. as a snare drum should be. So it's like um, that, that balance, you kind of let it, you let it get very skewed. And I thought that was that was a really interesting piece or a really interesting part of the piece that you know you have these two instruments one that is capable of a lot of timbral variety one that is not one that has a huge dynamic range and one that has still a pretty good dynamic range with mm-hmm. this with the saxophone but that that just imbalance was such a part of the piece and it, it like it felt so good as oh. a listener to finally hear something that wasn't like Oh well, uh, uh, bring the snare drum down. You know, let's not get out of hand. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, thanks. You know, when I was, I, I, it, the the piece is in five movements, and mm-hmm. uh, I think it's. And strangely enough, this is a piece that I would never remember really working on, which is why, the, mm-hmm. which is why I I, I uh, gravitated towards that title because. I was always sort of forgetting that's like, oh, shoot, yeah, I got to be writing that. Uh, <laughs> and I would also usually forget what I had written before. So I was uh-huh. always kind of sitting down and it was like I was fresh at the piece every time, which is, I, I think, why it ended up being these sort of, of five uh, miniature pieces. Um, the middle one is where the snare drum is just kind of wailing away on 16th notes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and the saxophone is just like, yeah, just play this. Fit in. Don't. I don't care. Just, you know, go do <laughs> this. And and there was something. Make sound. Yeah, right, right. And and I think sometimes, sometimes I'm turned off by refinement, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. I just sort of want, I just want it to be what it is. And and not like you said, try to shape it and get the two things to balance and 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 so on. I, that they really kind of needed their own space and to just you know be a friggin' snare drum and just go plow forward. And mm-hmm. I I was not worried about the tenor sax being buried. I mean, you're gonna hear right, it. you're yeah. gonna hear it. Uh, yeah. So just that kind of forceful driving go sort of of action. Um, yeah. And there's nothing like a good rim shot. I mean, the 
yeah. the 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 particular snare drum that that the player chose. Mm, it was tasty. right. It's great. It's a good good snare drum. Yeah, I love I love the opening. You took one mm-hmm. of my biggest pet peeves about music and turned it on its head and made and then like kind of made a piece about it. Okay. You know, the my my biggest pet peeve is the piece that starts you know just a single tone coming out of nothing and then it goes yeah, away. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But you gave me that and then you were like. No, fuck you. Bam. You know, like. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, the 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 piece is it's it that opening in, in particular was inspired by uh the the Zazen meditation practice. And there, okay. there's a thing uh-huh. called the the roll down or uh that's usually done with a wooden drum and it is sort of a hey, we are about to ring the bell and meditate, so get ready. And it is mm-hmm. that sort of starting off slow, getting faster, and then slowing down again. And then there are bells uh, that mm-hmm. that sort of initiate the session. So that's I that's what I've been been kind of working with in that in that figure. Uh, and it, it's shown up in a couple of other pieces. And that's kind of why it's there to just kind of click and and kind of fire up and sort of get ready because it. it, it mm-hmm. But then I realized. You know, yeah, that is kind of that that sort of trope of uh, repeat a note and get faster and slower. You know, uh-huh. feathered beaming and all like that. Um, but I'm I'm okay with it. That's that's kind of how I wanted it. Wanted well, it to go. Thing, I I guess I wasn't I wasn't really hearing it as uh, as a trope. I mean, well, I good. The, <laughs> The, that means I the saxophone. Right, the <laughs> saxophone. I was definitely expecting that. You okay. know, it's like, oh, it's going to come from nothing and it's going to go away, and then the piece is going to start. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. has no relationship to the piece. But then, like that, really set the tone for what the saxophone was going to be doing. Have this very oh. calm, long tones, relatively quiet, while the snare drum can be. Uh, commenting on or interrupting or mm-hmm. or whatever during the during that saxophone writing so i thought yeah. i thought it was very effective well thank you thank you i mean it, it can be a real struggle when you're dealing with sort of of tropes and patterns and such i think i think mm-hmm. there's a fear of of being cliche or right. derivative or something where you feel like no i can't i can't just do something plain mm-hmm but I I guess I find more and more in in my music, especially over the last you know five ten years or so, my music's been doing a whole lot less, and um, that's it's been an area of discomfort in writing, where I I, mm. I had this sort of internal critic in my mind saying, you can't just do that, you can't just have <laughs> that there, um, right, and and often that's that's sort of the hurdle that I'm trying to overcome as a composer. Well, one thing that I was definitely I think I w- I was definitely conditioned to be ex- to expect a fast section okay. in this piece. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the fact that you really didn't give that to me. Okay. I mean other than the part where the snare drum is like yeah, like yeah, you yeah. said kind of plowing ahead in 16th notes, but I didn't really interpret that as fast. Mm, sure, sure. You know, it's mm-hmm. like surf- surface rhythm is fast, but we're still moving at a relatively slow pace. Yeah. And that the fact that you didn't give me a fast section to contrast just made me like the piece even more. I mean, <laughs> thanks. What, you know, was there a point in the composition process where you thought, you know, do I need some contrast here? And sure. And what was it that prompted you to say, no, this this doesn't need it? Yeah, I, um, 
I I remember I remember uh, in my undergrad hearing the uh, trio by uh, Goretzky that's um, clarinet, cello, and piano, uh-huh. and I, I I'm blanking on the title, uh, but there were basically three movements that each was maybe 10 12 minutes long by themselves and they were all slow all basically the same texture and i just sat there thinking wait you're not supposed to do that right if you if you have multiple movements they've got to be different right uh and i remember you know uh ludislavsky's second symphony being used as the example there where two movements hesitant and direct it's like that's it (laughs) You know, and so I, I I have kind of dug that binary opposition where if one movement does one thing, the other movement has to do everything else, mm-hmm. and that I'm finding is is just sort of artificial, uh, uh, right? Yeah, <laughs> as as many things are. Yeah, I so mean, yeah, much everything we come up with is artificial. In some <laughs> yeah, way. right, right. It's like these are just arbitrary choices, and if I make arbitrary choices, they're just as valid as anybody else's arbitrary choices. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I was thinking, uh, it needs to be something different. Do I need this, that, or the other thing? And often I would start writing something of what I thought the piece needed, but the piece had a way of correcting me uh, where it's saying, Uh you know, nope, this, you were right. This, you know, I I understand why you're going off in this direction, but nope, you got to bring it back here. Uh, and actually, that that third section with the driving sixteenth notes, I think that was my attempt at fast, mm-hmm. and it just it won't go. So yeah, right. Let it let it be what it is. Uh, the nature of impermanence. So this is a you you kind of said it's a reference to like your working process where you keep mm-hmm. coming back to back to it and not really remember. But is it also a reference to Buddhism? Yeah, a bit. Um, I mean, there, I, I don't know that there's anything inherently Buddhist uh, about it. I didn't base it mm-hmm. on, I, I, well, I guess the the whole roll down thing at the beginning. Right. And I had planned on like bell chimes and stuff like that to kind of be- If in, there were electronics. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but I think just the idea that it'll pass, you know, um, mm-hmm. it, it, it sort of reminds me of a bit of, uh, what I would say when I would do like a 60 by 60 concert mm-hmm. and, you know, I'd have a room full of, of primarily students who had never heard electronic music before, had never really been to an electronic music concert. And the 60 by 60 uh, is great for that. And I would tell them, look, if you hate what you're listening to, don't worry, it'll be over soon and you'll be on to something <laughs> else, right? It can only last at most a minute yeah. before you get something new. Exactly. And it'll probably take you like 10 to 15 seconds to figure out if you don't like it. And then, yeah. you know, you're it, it, it's all downhill by the time you've made your decision. So right. uh, I, I think it's a little bit of that where this piece is going to change. It It is... I don't want to say I used it as sort of a cop out to, you know, get out of development because I, I don't really think that's true. I mean, some composers could probably listen to what's going on in this and say, well, gosh, I could develop this one part into a nine minute piece. Uh-huh. Good. Go do that. You know, that, right. that's then then go write your music. Uh, and this is I don't know. The, the, the piece just kind of is what it is. It it changes and then it stops. Mm hmm. I could, I, you know, I was, 
I was thinking about the title and I, I also thought like, hmm, well, maybe this could also be a a reference to um Jacob Druckmann's piece, the um, reflections, reflections on, on the, the nature of nature water. Of water. Yeah. 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 Uh yeah. And impermanence water, it's all huh. you know, it's kind of kind of a similar idea, except for the fact that no that piece was a for marimba and also like a tribute to wc in some way so. sure <laughs> but yeah it's a great title nonetheless. oh it's a great title and i know you can't copyright titles i mean we could all write pieces called reflections on the nature of water mm-hmm. except we can't you know yeah i just can't it's like quartet for the end of time god nobody else can use that title yeah um just nobody nor should they i think yeah exactly um so you said you wrote this for andrew allen mm-hmm and had you worked with him before? Yes. Uh, there's a piece for soprano sax, piano, and electronics uh, that I wrote for him called uh, All the Morning Silences that I wrote a couple of years ago. And I think that was the first piece that I wrote for him. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure. I think, you know, I was looking I was looking around at his website, mm-hmm. and uh, I, th- I believe he was, he is also commissioned or per- premiered another adjective uh composer collective member uh annie nykirk oh yeah okay yeah, yeah. i not not surprised i mean well for one saxophones saxophones they need generally love you know to work with composers because they're yeah. they're used to it right mm-hmm. um, right so uh, I'm, I'm not surprised i mean andrew's been making quite a career for himself with hustling new pieces and recording them and and Playing them at, at conferences and festivals and the like. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and, and uh, the the recording is actually going to be coming out on Equilibrium Records, I think sometime still this year. I nice. Yeah, fuzzy on the details. So, so this would be Andrew Allen and then uh, Gordon Hicken. Mm-hmm. Gordon Hicken and the the what was the name of the? It was Rogue Two. Rogue Two. Yeah, such a good name. <laughs> I know. All right. Well, let's listen to this. So this is Reflections on the Nature of Impermanence.
Now let's talk about your piece, uh, Dreams Grow Like Slow Ice. And this is for glissando flute and mm -hmm. electronics. Right. And you wrote this for Tammy Evans-Jans. So who is she and how did you get connected with her? Uh, Tammy is uh, currently on the faculty at South Dakota State University in Brookings, South Dakota. And I'm a little fuzzy on exactly how we met. Uh I think while I was at uh, University of Central Florida, she emailed me about uh, playing my piece Mercurial, which is for, mm -hmm. for uh, flute and fixed media. And she played that piece a bunch. And we just kind of became sort of active Twitter followers. Um, and she was at the National Flute Association uh in maybe 2012, 2013, I, I, I don't quite remember when it was, uh, but she was going through the exhibition tables and stuff like that mm -hmm. and and threw out on Twitter, do I want to buy this glissando head joint? I'm kind of <laughs> tempted to. And I said, you know, as a composer, there's no way that I can, you know, ethically talk you out of that. Right, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> buy, buy it and I'll, I'll write you a piece and it'll be fun. <laughs> so uh she bought it and then it's like okay cool well i get to write a piece uh so she sent me the fingering chart which is kind of fun and uh uh for for your listeners that don't know what the glissando head joint is do you want me to explain it yes a absolutely okay. because I, i'm a little fuzzy myself cool it, it it was invented by robert dick and he was from my understanding trying to emulate uh uh jimmy hendrix's whammy bar on his guitar. Oh, he wanted okay. that sort yeah. of expressive pitch bending kind of thing. So basically it is an extended track or tube that uh, the head joint, you know, it, it, it extends beyond the regular uh, length of a, of the flute. Uh -huh. There are flanges on either side of the lip plate and basically the head joint slides out. 
almost oh, almost okay. like slide whistle style. So it makes the yeah. it, it it makes the flute longer. So you uh-huh. can take any you know if if the head joint's all the way in, it plays like a regular flute. But then you can take it and slide it out and basically change the the fundamental. Mm-hmm. So you can bend it down and and up and the like. Uh, and what's that range like? How how much can you bend it? It it depends on the fingering, which was kind of fun because the the fingering chart and I got it around here somewhere, but it, this isn't a video show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, in general, I, I found that it was about a third. Uh, okay. but there, depending on your fingerings and such, you could get as much as a fourth or I think in one case, even, even a tritone hmm. and the way that you notate for it, you can basically notate the, the pitch and then sort of slide from there, uh, especially for going down. But if you wanted to glissando up, you sort of notate the pitch that they're supposed to be fingering and it's almost like harmonics. Yeah. Right. So, because you would need... If they're if they're sliding up to a G, they have to and sliding up from like an E flat, yep. they have to be fingering the G first. Exactly, and exactly. then replace uh, their, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Words. No, I get it. I get it. Uh, and and so in writing this piece, especially since it was my first time dealing with this, I really kind of used the fingering chart as uh, as source material because mm-hmm. I thought, okay, I'm going to write a melody that is fairly lullaby-like and could be done either you know with standard fingerings or that you could gliss from one note to another mm-hmm. uh, just so I could sort of uh, infuse the glissando nature of it into the, the melody itself. Uh, I wasn't really interested in it as like a pitch-bendy kind of expressive tool so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I really wanted it to... I wanted the glissandoness to matter and not sort of be right. Yeah. Decorative. Um, and then there were time, there are times in that where I use it to sort of accentuate the, the line itself, because, uh, one of the other markings that I put in there is to just start with a head joint all the way out and gradually slide it in while you're fingering these notes. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of another way of getting around that, that pitch bendness. Um, Mm -hmm. so there are times where I have, lines that are going you know from down to up and the head joint starts out and comes all the way in so while she is fingering this lick there's this additional slide that's going in there mm-hmm. and i i think i remember one point where you kind of did something actually kind of similar to like a Jimi hendrix thing where you're like trilling on, yeah. on something and then you just kind of keep going down and down the trill goes down and that was something he used to do with the whammy bar a lot right yes yes right and uh that also takes the low b of the flute and turns it into a low a because you hey, can get all the way down there and i know it's really quiet and hard to balance um uh-huh. but it's it's there so yeah uh, i figured hey why not uh, so the title is a fragment from William Gibson's book uh, *Neuromancer*, yep. and I looked up uh, I looked up possible definitions of that word *neuromancer*. Okay, and from what I found, it, I mean, this was albeit on um, oh, what's the uh, Urban Dictionary? Okay, okay. So whatever, but um, it said it was a uh, *neuromancer* is a perfect blend of technology and magic. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Neuromancer, uh, 
it it's basically I think seen as sort of the the cyberpunk, you know, sort of the, the initial cyberpunk book. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's probably not entirely true. I'm sure people were writing cyberpunk things before uh, Neuromancer, mm-hmm. but it, it's sort of seen as the book that really sort of captured that that spirit or, or zeitgeist, and it it does sort of deal with technology and virtual reality and and physical interactions with computers mm-hmm. in in a very uh fluid sort of manner. Um, this was a pretty influential book. Like like I was reading it, it like influenced oh, yeah. the Matrix and you know oh, yeah. so many other books and movies and definitely, definitely. And um it I mean it's basically people well the main character is somebody who used to be able to physically jack into computers and essentially surf the internet. I don't know. I don't know if you can hear my dog in the background going ballistic, but it's okay. She does that sometimes. Uh, <laughs> so he, he basically has a, a hard drive space in his head that mm-hmm. he uses to take and transfer information and, and learn stuff. Um, it's a little, f- in, in some ways, it's still very sort of futuristic to read now. Um, you just need to replace like the the talk of megabytes with gigabytes, and then it works. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, just update it. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think I I had I was reading it that summer. Uh, I've I've read it a couple of times, and uh, man, there's just some really wonderfully poetic language in there, and mm. I just started kind of I I have a a little file. For potential titles, mm-hmm. and um, I know. Sorry, Kimber's here to. It's okay. Hey, it's Kimber. Okay. Hey, it's all right. Um. Anyway, uh, uh file for potential titles, and mm-hmm. there were a lot of things that I was just pulling out of there. I mean, it, it has a very poetic, uh, prose sort of style. Mm-hmm. Um, that, but it still works well in terms of storytelling. I mean, I, I would put it sort of. Kind of like a Handmaid's Tale, where mm-hmm. you know that book is is some blend between prose and poetry. The right, just yeah, wonderfully uh, uh, poetic imagery. So, yeah, that that's where that title comes from. And I mean the the kind of lullaby melody you wrote, and you said like it gradually transforms and it ends mm-hmm. up in a dark place. Was this somehow connected to? Like, you know, yeah. Um, the story in, in general or just kind of like abstract feelings that you got from yeah, it, the it, book? It, it, it's really more about the mood. Um, mm-hmm. it, it isn't directly referencing any specific moment in Neuromancer or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It was just a great kind of poetic touchstone yeah. to jumping off point. So, The uh, electronics, are the, is this fixed or live? Fixed. It's fixed. I was kind of wondering because you kind of talked about freezing yeah. and you know, I was, I was kind of wondering if you were, if that was a metaphorical statement or you were just, you were actually doing some, some spectral freezing or something like that. Um, yeah, there is some spectral freezing that's going on in the fixed media part, but it's from, right. it's from samples. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And this is going to be Tammy Evans Yance playing this on this recording. Yep, and uh, this is a live recording. Uh, she's currently making an album right now, and nice. uh, yeah, I know. And and this is going to be on it, but uh, yeah, more on more on on that as details develop. Stay tuned. <laughs> um, so this is dreams grow like slow ice. 
So let's talk about two slow movements. And we're only going to hear the first of the slow movement. Yep. But I remember reading a blog post of yours or maybe maybe a series of tweets a few years back about your desire to simplify yeah. your, your music. And I mean, this is something you mentioned earlier with the first piece we looked at. But where does this or does this desire to simplify come from? Good question. Um, I think... Uh, I I think it comes from uh, a quote that I've heard attributed to Rodavera, where he says, I don't compose the way the world is. I compose music the way I wished it would be. Mm -hmm. And that really resonated with me. Um, I think that, you know, for a while I was really into hectic, fast, active uh, music. I Mm -hmm. think that was of part of my youthful exuberance perhaps and uh as i i land squarely into middle age it's like you know my life is really hectic and chaotic and busy i i don't need that in my music too mm-hmm. um if anything my my desire for for stillness and solitude and contemplation is is being carried out in my music where I, I just want to try to put that mood out onto the, the audience. Um, and in, in my own listening pieces, that sort of, of force stillness on you, mm-hmm. but not in a, not in a, a authoritarian kind of force stillness way, but like in a Jörg Fry sort of way where it's like, you just, you just, change states mentally as you're listening to this yeah um that has just sort of become my my desired aesthetic mm-hmm. um and yeah this piece is kind of i mean it's for uh it's for a uh chamber ensemble and you wrote it for <laughs> yeah. C- central michigan the, yep. the new music ensemble there yep. it's somehow kind of arvo partian but yeah Sure. I but I find your pitch language language so much more attractive. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I mean, I, I'm still, I'm I'm still very much drawn towards dissonance, mm-hmm. and yeah, and especially I don't really think about uh, harmonies so much as I think about intervals. Mm-hmm. So a lot of things start with kind of intervallic sets that I can sort of cycle through and 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 obsess on so are you are you kind of using basically the 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 12 tone pitch space is abstractly free and then Mm -hmm. you can take these sets and then place them wherever you want so you're still kind of working in a set based theory or do you kind of have a pitch field that you compose out of these sets yeah that is a much more theory question than I have thought about this, to be honest. <laughs> and and there was a time. Well, that goes back. That goes back to your adjective intuitive. Yeah, uh, yeah, right, you know? right. Um, there was a time where I I could tell you where all these notes came from, mm-hmm. and that would have been you know kind of sort of the late '90s when I was writing you know stuff that probably sounded like like Carter on meth. Um, <laughs> And nowadays, I'm I'm I've been sort of broken of that. I I I don't have 
a very specific intellectual process with it. Mm-hmm. Usually what happens is I find, I mean, I, I find something that I like and yeah, cause one of the adjectives I sent you was, was obsessive. I, I find something that I like and could just continually listen to over and over and over again. Right. And then I just sort of work from there. I, I will do a little bit of theory. For example, uh, the sort of main interval pattern started off as two notes, and I thought, well, I I need to spice this harmony up a little bit. So what what intervallic things could I add that are internally consistent? Because I I mean I want it to be consistent, uh, language wise. But I'm finding it really difficult to transpose things. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's like nope this this series these intervals these harmonies only work in this voicing in this register in this order, um, I mean yes technically I do know how to transpose things and that and that that is a thing that I can do as a composer right <laughs> that would that would be the greatest con of ever if you. <laughs> If you got to this point in your career is like transposition, yeah, what? wow, I know, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah, uh, and and I hit on that idea. I mean that I, I can sort of see where that seed got planted. I, I can almost point to the to the year and to the piece and to the moment where I hit on a chord that it's like, wow, this chord only works with these notes. When I transpose it. Yeah, it does not work, and I don't. I don't know what that is. I I don't know why that is that way. No, I have a I have a very very similar thing. Like I've been. Um, uh, let's see. It's uh, if you, you below middle C, you need mm-hmm. to play an F and an E flat below that and a G flat below that. Okay. And it's uh, it's a chord that I used in a uh, set of songs that don't even really exist anymore. Sure. Uh, and um, I remember hitting on that and then taking it to my lesson and my teachers saying like, ooh, this is very re- reflective of the text. And it, But it was like that particular chord, I've kept coming back to that chord in a number of different pieces just because it sounds so good yeah. right there. And like you say, I've tried to like, uh, well, I can't use that because that's not <laughs> that's not the scale that I'm working in right now, or that's sure. that's not where this needs to be, or or the instrument can't play that note. But yeah, and you know, you try to transpose it, and it just doesn't work anymore. Right. That's right. Uh, that's and that, crazy. That, that that chord used to show up in a lot of my pieces, and there kind of came a point where it's like, okay, I gotta stop doing this. I gotta, you know, the, yes, that's I, exactly I have to what not I use this chord anymore because, yeah, yeah, yeah. and eh, it still shows up and from time t- to time. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's too bad because it's like this is so good, right? But yeah, you tend to keep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, playing. I yeah, I, I mean, I suppose you know Beethoven used the same major chord over and over again, so I suppose. <laughs> Oh, that Beethoven! Yeah, what a hack! Of course, then again, he he transposed his major chords a couple of times. He did. He had that skill, Jay. Yeah, you, um. you, you, <laughs> you can just imagine how how much more uh, uh, bizarre Eroica would be if he never transposed. Right. right? But so this this piece, this yeah. I think this music is deceptively simple. Okay, because so much of it is kind of 
made or broken on the performers looking at this and deciding Mm -hmm. whether or not to practice, whether or not to give it the time of day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's not... With music that's kind of running all over the place, there's, you know, their performers can kind of hide. Sure. It's like, oh, I'm just, yeah, it's just like, blah, 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 blah. it's but very exposed. This, yeah. Yeah. They are very exposed. So tone, touch, color, mm-hmm. all of these themes, all of these things mean so much more in a piece like this. So what's been your experience with working with performers on pieces that kind of, that don't allow them to show off? Yeah. That's, that is a good question uh, because there is a simplicity that I go for and, and, and like you say, you can't, you can't hide. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this piece in particular, I mean, the students, the students were just fantastic uh, at dealing with blend and intonation and all of those kinds of things. And I... I also had to approach the piece with that in mind, where mm-hmm. you know, try to find ways in which it, it really was an ensemble piece, um, and that really kind of helps put the whole thing together. When, when I do, and um, there have been times where I have almost, uh, I got very nervous handing pieces to performers. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially a a solo piano piece called Lullaby Boxes that I I wrote for my colleague Alexandra Mascolo-David, where I literally wrote on it as I was writing it. It's like, you can't give her this. This is too simple. This isn't, (laughs) you know, no, uh, don't do this. Uh, right. But I, I did it anyway. <laughs> and and in those kind of each movement, there are three movements and they get kind of progressively simpler and simpler and more sort of obsessive. And there's a real, um, there's a real sort of clenching inside about that because mm-hmm. I feel like in some ways I'm being more um, true, more honest more mm-hmm. vulnerable as far as who I am as a, as a composer. Uh, yeah. Where I'm not, I'm not sort of, of, I'm not trying to hide what I'm doing. I'm just showing you, look, this is it. This is the piece. This is the process. And either you're going to be into it or you're not. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a very vulnerable kind of thing. Well, uh, and you said earlier that this, that writing in this way was kind of a struggle in a Mm -hmm. way like you had to overcome a lot of you know uh internal factors like pushing you one way or the other so oh and i still do i mean the the we're we're nothing if we're not neurotic second guessers right yeah totally (laughs) i mean is, is that kind of place of coming coming through or coming to creativity or making art in a place where you're uncomfortable, is that something that is is kind of driving for you? Yeah, I think so. Um, when I if I if I know too much about it, if I am too sort of mentally aware of it, I don't trust it mm-hmm. musically. I guess mm-hmm. um, there's something that I don't know. I know it when it's right. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that I can't 
articulate things like, you know, pitch field and, and so on. Because for a long time, I really sort of hid behind that as a defense mechanism mm-hmm. where it's like, well, you know, this note has to be this note because of this process. And I could explain where everything was. And I felt like that was, was, um, I don't know. Did that, that make the piece criticism proof in some way? I don't know. Um, where now it's, it's just purely because I want to hear it this way. Mm -hmm. And that feels like such a, a lack of reason to write something (laughs) in some respects, (laughs) you know, it's like uh, when composers get hung up on talking about the audience or, or things like that. And they, they're trying to write things that the audience wants to hear. And I'm thinking it's like, I, 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 I like this. So that's why I'm writing this. Right. Um, Why would you write something that you don't want to hear? You know? Yeah. Well, and I I think, I I do think that there's, that there are people that that need to and want to do that. You know, I I look Mm -hmm. at, at, you know, students that want to go into film composition, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they should be proud of the work that they do. They should be satisfied with the work that they do. It might not be the language or material that they are naturally drawn to do. They might sure. not, you know, it's not like John Williams woke up and said, you know what? I'm really motivated today. Let's write a film score. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like this is, you know, th- this is the demand of the job. Um, and you have to write the music that fits, whether or not you are sort of moved or inspired to do so or, or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. It, it, I guess it, it feels really selfish and self-indulgent of me to to say that the only reason that I wrote it this way is because I like hearing it this way. And therefore, mm-hmm. you should all, you know, you should practice this because I like hearing it this way, you know? Yeah, but at the same time, like, you know, I've I, I I've had a difficult uh kind of relationship with thinking about audience. Sure. In the past because because it's like well i'm doing i am doing this because this is this is what i'm called to do or or mm-hmm. propelled to do or, or whatever you know and i think that when we get too hung up on oh what's the audience going to think or 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 we just completely ignore it like i don't really think about the audience that much i mean i'm like the whole goal of life is just to be happy with what you're doing. So, sure. you know, if if making art in the way that you want to make it is what keeps you a fulfilled person, yeah. then the audience, I mean, the audience can be terrifying in that respect yeah. because, and I, I think that's how I feel with some of these very simple pieces is I'm, I'm very afraid of the judgment of, mm-hmm. you know, that it, it's boring that okay, I find it obsessive and and interesting, but everybody else is bored out of their minds, mm-hmm. or uh, the judgment from other composers, where it's like, <laughs> look, don't you know that you can transpose these chords, dumbass? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah, I I do know that I can do all these things, and I'm choosing not to. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, composers are nothing see, my, if we're not if we're not judges. Like. Well, right, and and see, I was I was hoping, I was telling myself all morning uh, when recording this thing, don't come across as an erotic mess. Uh, 
But there we have it. No, I don't. Th- I don't think so. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I think I think it takes guts to to just like this is the way it is. And no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna frill it up. It this is this is what I want to hear. This is this is. Yeah, I mean, I, I that's it. This is what it is. I mm-hmm. mean, it's a very, it's a very like John Cage way to way to think about it. Like, yeah. I'm just going to let it what be what it needs to be, mm-hmm. you know, and that's it. Yeah, and and that's, and, and that's beautiful. Well, it, thanks, thanks, and, and I, I that's what I try to do as an audience member, and yes. as a, as a mm-hmm. teacher, you know, I can't I can't armchair write my students' pieces or well. I take that back. I totally can. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't. I try. I try not to. Right. I, yeah. I try, that's I try that's very the goal. Hard. Right. Yeah. Right. I that that the goal is to sit back and try to see. Okay, what is this piece trying to do, and how to how to how to get into what it's actually doing, not what I want it to do. Or you know, if, if a student yes, if the student exactly. wants feedback. Okay, what are you trying to do? How can we get what you're trying to do be the most of whatever it is it's trying to do? Yeah, and I mean that's that. Uh, just in, I don't even ever think it was a explicit lesson, but you know, from my from my previous teacher, uh, Kurt Stallman. Mm-hmm. You know, I always I would always observe him at concerts, and and as a listener, he is trying to meet the piece where it is so it's not about like oh what is what is this doing that i like or what is it doing that i think is good who the hell cares about what you think like (laughs) you you need to go to where the piece is and then try to live in that space so and yeah that's hard he's exhausted i mean i (laughs) i I try to do this in concerts and i'm exhausted after that because it's like it, it listening takes so much energy that I think a lot that the normal audience doesn't mm-hmm. they don't make that leap with you. So yeah, they yeah. It can be terrifying when when that judgment comes down. But sure. I happen to like it. So um <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna listen to it now. And this is the first movement of the piece simply called Two Slow Movements.
Okay. Yeah. Last question. Uh-huh. How did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Yeah, I've been thinking about this one a lot. Um, and in some ways I'm going to answer it, and in other ways I'm, I'm not. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, basically, I mean, I, I was active in music for a long time. I mean, I started playing piano when I was maybe five, uh, started trumpet in the fifth grade and most of the, what I enjoyed about school and, and such, especially as I got into high school was playing music Uh and, you know, I played trumpet in band. I played piano in our jazz band and, I I did what a lot of kids do in high school, where it's like I really like band. Uh, I want to keep this going. I'm going to be a high school band teacher. Yeah, mm-hmm. there it is. And that was me. <laughs> sure, sure. And you know why not? Uh, through a series of um, unfortunate events, to borrow from my daughter's favorite author, uh, or one of them anyway, uh, I ended up as a piano major at my uh, local college and um was it was not a good fit mm-hmm. i wasn't really that prepared uh to be a piano major i had uh an emotionally abusive piano teacher and uh basically drove myself uh to the point of of collapse where uh 25 years ago this month i was in uh braces and uh both arms so uh basically one step down from from a plaster cast going from my wrist to my elbow uh from tendonitis uh basically Mm -hmm. overuse and stress and and so on uh so at that time um you know suddenly i had these six to eight hour chunks of time in my day where i i couldn't do what i was doing and uh Somebody said, you know, there's a computer lab over in the art building that's got some music stuff in that. You should go check that out. So I did and kind of fell into uh, Music Pros 2.0, which was the <laughs> the early light version of Finale uh-huh. and a Korg M1. And oh, man. I know, right? Uh and I started learning that, and I started composing and working with performer. This is not digital performer. This was only just, MIDI performer. Just performer. Yeah. <laughs> Although that station had a, had a Korg T2, so that was, you know, leveling <laughs> Moving up. up there. Oh, definitely. Uh, and I was, I was happier as a composition student than I was as a piano student, definitely. So my second year of, of college, I switched to composition lessons instead of, of piano. And I was actually actively looking for ways out. Um, I was huh. trying to uh, figure out what else I could be doing because uh, it was just not a good fit. I didn't, didn't have any friends. I didn't have any real motivation to be there or stay there other than the fact that that's where my girlfriend was. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I took those tests that you take to say, well, what kind of career aptitude might you have and so on? And and I was really close to, and, and I, I haven't really talked about this much, uh, uh, dropping music and actually majoring in German and uh, with the idea of becoming a, a foreign correspondent. Um, oh, man. Well, my, wow. my senior year of high school, I was a foreign exchange student to Germany. So I, uh-huh. I had... 
I had those chops. Um, they're really rusty now, but uh, that that was the thing. Um, my uh, girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, wanted to study music therapy, and they couldn't do that at, at my local college. So she was interested in trans- uh, transferring to the University of Kansas, mm-hmm. and uh, I looked at the composition program there and went with her and uh was basically extremely happy that i did i mean in in many ways my wife kind of is is the reason that i'm a musician now because otherwise i I don't think i would be uh ku was a great fit for me um i had a great undergrad teacher in charles hoig and um some really interesting uh sort of being left alone by their electronic music guy uh, at the time, uh-huh. Ed, Ed Madela. Uh, and I had a, a friend there named Ian Burns who turned me on to Negative Land. And in listening to Negative Land's Escape from Noise, it's like, you can do this. You can make stuff like this. <laughs> so th- that's kind of, that's some of the stuff that got me going in, in electronics. And uh, uh, Darren McGee, who was on their faculty, uh, kept me going in music technology because as soon as I hit the ground there, it's like, hey, I know about Max and uh, and uh, uh, music and, and stuff. Do you need somebody to help with your lab monitors? And he's like, sure. So here's a key to the computer lab. And yes, you know, I, I, I was in a room with, you know, six computers. Uh, we got two PowerMax 6100s that year and we were living large, man. We were... <laughs> Somebody, somebody had put uh, Wolfenstein 3D on one of those machines. And, oh man! Yeah. Oh, it was great. Uh, I would do my 16th century counterpoint homework in Finale because I was bored and sitting in the lab not doing anything. So uh, that's kind of what got me going uh, in 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 music. Was yeah. Awesome. So, how did you not answer that question? <laughs> There are a lot. Of, there are a lot of details. Uh, All right, fair in, enough. In there that I'm kind of glossing over. So <laughs> awesome. Well, before we go, uh, where can people find you online and connect with you? Uh, well, my website is my name jbatsner.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter with that. I've I've uh, given up on Facebook. Uh, I don't really go there anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, um, uh, Central Michigan University. I'm on the faculty there, so if you are wandering around their faculty pages and find somebody who looks like me, it's probably me. It's pro- there's a good chance. <laughs> yeah, there's a good chance. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Jay. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.